Welcome to the Small Business Edge Podcast with Brian Moran, sponsored by Pitney Bowes. Now, here's your host, Brian Moran. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Small Business Edge Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Moran, and our guest today is Joe Knight, a co-owner and senior consultant at the Business Literacy Institute and co-author of the world-renowned Financial Intelligence book series published by Harvard Business Review. Welcome to the Small Business Edge podcast, Joe Knight. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Brian. Appreciate it. Uh, Joe, it's my pleasure. I, I have always been a fan, as you know, of you and your work. And uh, we had you on our podcast uh, uh, several years ago. And uh, your it still reigns as one of the uh, best podcasts that we have done uh, because financial matters among business owners are, you know, it's, it, it can be like the black hole for them. They, they, yeah. they, they try and get as much information as they possibly can. And, and you're such a great resource. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I enjoy this stuff and it's really important to me. And Brian, one other thing I, I'd like to say about this, you know, you say I'm the co-author of financial intelligence. My partner in, in writing this book is Karen Berman. Uh, you're aware of that. And I just want to make a point. Karen Berman, I got a, a PhD in educational psychology and her, her doctoral thesis was based on research that when employees understand the finances and the numbers in a business and then are shared financial information, those businesses are more profitable. That was her dream. And, uh, you know, I ran a business that way. You probably know that. I ran a, co- a manufacturing company called Setpoint where I shared numbers. We collaborated and wrote that book together. And I guess I'd like to say just up front uh, for everybody to know, this was Karen's dream to, to, to build a business, write a book, where, where her vision could get could spread out, not only to small business, but to corporate America, large public companies, small companies alike. And Karen passed away about eight years ago yeah. of pancreatic cancer. And I, I pay tribute to her because this the success of the book and su- the success of the Business Literacy Institute is really her dream and her, 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 her development. And I'm just, I was just along for the ride. And we carry it on today. And it's really been a uh, her dream and what we put together with that book has been proven time and time again. The book is selling more today than it did in 08 when it came out, the original book. So kudos to Karen. Just want yeah, to recognize. Yeah, absolutely. And I've known you. I'm trying to think back uh, how long I've, I've probably known you for 20 years. Yeah, you knew right? Karen. Yeah. yeah, and Karen. And uh, I remember your roadmaps that you would create for. Right, for, right. our money maps. Exactly. Your money yeah. maps. And those yeah. were great. Those, those yeah. they helped an idiot like me understand finances. So Very nice. a lot of companies uh, have us develop money maps for them. They're great tools. They they really are. But you know, and and kudos to you and and Karen for the book because uh, Harvard recognized it as one of the hundred top business books of all time. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And when you think about how many books have been written for businesses, that's pretty impressive. And I will I will tell you, Joe, I've seen your I've read your books. I've read your blogs. I've seen you speak in person um, and and I've seen your your online courses. And I don't know um, that there are too many other people in this country who can better explain the finances in business than than you. So okay. I appreciate that. And, you know, I, I came on organically because I got involved in a small business. I was a finance guy. And my two engineer partners said, you know what, Joe, we want to share our numbers every week. 
And so I'd share the numbers and they'd all go, hey, Joe, we have no idea what you're talking about. So <laughs> I had to teach my guy and my, and my people in my own company how to read the numbers for years. And, yeah. and I developed a method and, and then I, we brought Karen's Academia to it and we, it kind of works. And we, we came up with a system and a way of helping explain numbers. So, yeah, that's what we specialize in. Well, you know, you talk about uh, that kind of that open book strategy, right? Where you right. kind of share your numbers. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Um, you sure. know, the philosophy behind sharing the financials with your team. The genesis of this came from these two engineers that worked at a company uh, that was a roller coaster manufacturer, a mechanical engineer and electrical engineer. And by the way, they're both named Joe to make keep it complicated. So <laughs> these two guys worked at this company. They loved their job. They loved everything they did. But the company was privately held. And as typical in any public company, most public companies, they wouldn't share numbers. They were very secretive. But these guys were smart and they could tell things weren't going well in the business. And they got a lot of anxiety. They were worried. There was always, they seemed stressed during payroll times. The vendors were all being paid late. So they knew there was something wrong. But when they go to management and say, how are things going financially? They'd say, that's not your job. You're an engineer. And so um, that created some issues, uh, issues for them. So they quit and decided to start their own business. Wow. And uh, this business was called Setpoint. And they they did manufacturing automation and, and basically build equipment that are used in manufacturing processes like uh, an airbag manufacturer called AutoLeave. We did some stuff for Tesla. Wouldn't mm -hmm. recommend that, by the way, but uh, mm -hmm. that's another time. But, <laughs> but we did a lot of work for different companies. And then we got back into the entertainment industry and did some Disney and Universal work on their rides and that kind of thing. But what happened is because of their experience with their former employer, they decided when we own our own business, we're going to do it differently. We're just going to open the books. And they had met me. For, they were a previous acquaintance of mine. Their accountant had told them, you know what? You shouldn't share numbers. There's four reasons why. And he was very, very adamant about this. He said, first, if you share your numbers with the employees and they see you're making money, they're going to resent you and want more money. They're going to want to get paid more and feel like you're getting rich. Number two, uh, if you start losing money, they'll all quit and panic and they won't be able to handle that. Number three, finance and accounting is really hard to explain. It's very complex. And then finally, if you share your numbers with your employees, your customers will find out your pricing when you get in competitive bid situations. Your suppliers will be involved. They'll know your numbers and, and that, that'll hurt you in all those ways. So they're like, what do we do, Joe? And I, I said, we share the numbers. I think it's a great idea, guys. And so I sat down with them. I'm not a hardcore accountant. I'm more of a financial analyst. My background was at Ford and uh, an MBA in finance um, from Berkeley. And so I was coming in saying, you know what, that's a great idea. Let's figure out a way to share the numbers that make sense to you. So we developed a system to share numbers. And what we saw happening is our employees, as they understood the numbers, they drove the numbers and made them better. And the other thing I learned, Brian, is when you open the books, it's shocking to the employees how little the owners make. Because everybody thinks, I got a $4 million business. I'll bet those guys are making a million a year. And you're going, no, no, we made 300000 this year. And we pay taxes on that. And they're going, and they're like, God, this really... I thought you guys were rich because you had this multi-million dollar business. And so normal, when people see the numbers, it's actually surprising to most employees that, that the owners don't get to keep that much. And, and, uh, and so I never, that was never a problem. And, uh, and I like to say this too, Brian, accounting is adding and subtracting numbers. When we get sophisticated, we divide. The math is all very simple. What we like to do in finance and accounting is, is have all these terms and acronyms for the same things. So we confuse people with language, but the math is all simple. My company was an engineering company. All these engineers, when I got done training them, they, they'd go, that's all you guys do in finance and accounting? 
when you take the second derivative, and I go, you know what? We don't have to do any dynamic analysis. We just want to know if we make money. And so the engineers are like, dude, you guys get paid to do that kind of math? So you know what? There's nothing hard about this. We make it hard as a profession by the language we use, and, uh, and we confuse people. But once you get the basics, you can work your way around the statements very easily. And that's such a great point because there are, you know, the, I know this, that the listeners and viewers of, of Small Business Edge run the gamut. We have people who are just starting out in business and we have people who've been in business 20, 30, 40 years. We have companies that, you know, are, are barely breaking even or a home base. We have all the way up to a billion dollar company, right? right. Uh, companies that, that will listen to it. So it runs the gamut. But I do know this, that a lot of people are afraid of the finances and they, it's almost like they put their head in the sand and say, oh, I, I don't know that. You know, I was smart enough to hire a bookkeeper or an accountant, but I don't really understand the numbers. And I know your philosophy on that is that's great that you hired a bookkeeper or an accountant, especially if it's not a strong suit of yours, but you still have to learn the numbers, Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we surveyed this, too. You know what else people do? And this is very common, too. They fake it. So, you know, <laughs> your account will come in and go, yeah, you know, your EBIT is really down. If we try to do if we try to sell this business right now, our EBIT is too low. And, you know, the, the guys, the owners of the business, I'll go, yeah, I, I can't stand it when EBIT is down. EBIT is terrible. And, and, and you know, you sit there and go, what, is it, what does EBIT really mean? They go, oh, well, it's some kind of acronym. I know, and it has to do with profit. They say it's really important in acquisition. But, my, my experience is, is, is most people aren't willing to say, what does that really mean? They just act like they, they fake it and they act right. like they know. And I always, right. when I do classes, I go, this is the chance where you don't have to act like you're faking it because I don't know who you work for. I don't know your boss. Ask me the questions and I'll explain it. Because, right. because we, we just don't understand a lot of these terms very well. Right. But as you say, going back to it, it's basics. It's, it's, it's yeah. the adding and subtracting and, and where you come down to a net number. Did you make right. money? Did you lose money? Right. Right. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so, so looking, looking, I, I want to, a lot of the questions that I get from our listeners and viewers have to do with the pandemic and how it turned the world upside down. Um, and, and invariably finance comes in and, and um, you know, when you look back on 2020, and even in the beginning of 2021, you had, you know, some businesses, a lot of businesses survived, some even thrived, depending on what kind of industry or sector you were in. But many got knocked down and, and a lot went out of business. So from a, from a financial perspective, um, what do you think was the biggest difference between the winners and the losers? Well, Brian, it's, it's really simple from my point of view. It's it's a simple thing called cash flow. Yes. It's called cash. Okay. Now, now let me let me make a point here. Over the last 10 years, I've worked with a lot of public companies, a lot of small companies, but but what I've seen on Wall Street is Wall Street has transitioned. It used to be EBITDA and revenue growth and these kinds of things. Now Wall Street is focused on a number we call free cash flow. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And basically that's discretionary cash that your business generates. The challenge is, is small businesses get an accountant to do their books and they look at their income statement and say, I'm profitable, but profit is not cash. Right. And we tend to not look at cash flow enough. So we should take a clue from this. If Wall Street for the last five years, you know, you go back to the financial crisis of 08 and cash was really tight. You go back even further to the fraud that happened during the uh, 
during the uh, um, during the dot com boom and all that kind of stuff with Enron and WorldCom. Yeah, Wall Street got a clue and they said we need to focus more on cash flow. Mm-hmm. We need to focus mm-hmm. more on that. Small businesses even more so. And so I would I would make the point that if you get an income statement and study that, you should also have your your finance people track your cash flow and project it out for at least three months, if not longer, so you can plan for cash. And that's the problem is in a pandemic, all of a sudden you might be losing money, but it's, it's when you can't make payroll. That's, you know, having run a small business, when you can't make payroll, that's when you're done. And the income statement doesn't inform you on that like it should. No. So that's the key is figuring out how to get it cash flow. Right. And, and, and some of the biggest issues during the pandemic, and I've seen this, whenever we hit bumps in the economy, um, you know, 2008 and, and, and more recently with, with the pandemic, you know, net 30 becomes net 60, becomes net 90, becomes net 120. And so as you are laying out your, your financials for the year, you go, okay, well, I have these payables in May, but I have these receivables coming in. And then all of a sudden, that, re- that large receivable that you were expecting in May is now not coming until July. But the payments right. haven't moved. Right. And, and your accountant's saying, you're still profitable. Y- yeah. Like, well, we're, oh, yeah, we'll make it. You know, I'll tell you a story around that. I've trained, I've trained GE for years. Actually, GE's fallen on flat hard times, and I've been training there. Um, <laughs> I did train NBC Universal for them, and mm-hmm. I still have a great relationship with them and, do, and come to New York twice. It used to come to New York twice a year to do NBC Universal. But Something wait, wait. About is there is there a coincidence between you not training them and them falling on hard times? <laughs> yes, there is. All right. Uh, in fact, All right. it turns out that in 08, 09, there was not a lot of training happening. And what's interesting is during the pandemic, Brian, for the first four months, we had nothing going on because I used to fly out and talk to people. But after about four months, it's busier than it's been prior to the pandemic with my training. Mm-hmm. Back, to, back to the GE point. Uh, when, they, when 2008 hit, they had a big cash crunch a cash crisis. And so what they did is they said, you know what, across the board, we're going to take our payables from 60 days to 120 days. Mm, yeah. And they did it. And then two months go by and they call me up and they say, hey, Joe, we'd like you to change your curriculum a little bit. And I said, why is that? And they go, well, a lot of our small company suppliers on, in our supply chain <clears throat> didn't realize that when they go to 120, they're going to go bankrupt. Yeah. And we need, we, we need to teach our, our business managers and our executives how to get into their numbers of our, some of our key suppliers and make sure that their financials can sustain that because they don't seem to understand it. And so I, I did classes on how to measure day sales outstanding and key metrics on your working capital. And they, and they were going to take that out to their supply chain and figure out those that could handle 120 and those that couldn't handle 120, they would let them stay at 60. And the problem was, was they, they had some critical manufacturing processes that had to shut down because they killed their vendors by going to 120 where their vendors just thought, hey, we'll be fine. And they weren't. And by the way, as I'm teaching this class, going through this with all the guys, I go, um, by the way, do you think that training is a, is a critical part of your business? And they all started laughing. So, you know, I stayed at 120 days. I didn't get down to 160. <laughs> <laughs> they left me at 120, but I taught them all how critical that is. So it's right. interesting that that the buyer didn't realize the damage they were doing by going to 120. And some of these fairly big suppliers didn't realize, they thought this is one of our biggest customers. If they wanna to go to 120 and they're desperate for cash, we can do it. They really couldn't because they didn't understand the cash impact of that. Right, so okay, so now you're advising a business that just got handed a notice saying that their biggest customer is moving from 60 to 120. Right. What What are you advising that that business? What are you telling them to? Obviously, is it is it get access to capital, get a credit line? 
do something to deal with the ebbs and flows? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I dealt with that in my own business at set point where, where uh, our biggest customer, uh, our initial customer was 80% of our business, a company called AutoLeave, an airbag manufacturer, a tier one supplier in, this, in, uh, in automotive. And uh, they went from, I think, 40 days to 70 days. And, uh, and the first thing you do as a small company, I, I really advise this, is to go back and push back and say, we're not going to do that. Yeah. Second is raise, raise your prices and tell them you're going to raise prices for that. Sometimes they'll, they'll come back at you and you can work it down. So uh, play that angle. I'll work the days down. But the second thing that's very important that you mentioned, you need to have a credit line in place and yeah. you get a credit line in place based on receivables or some kind of working capital asset that you have inventory receivables. And, and here's the advice for you. If you try to get a credit line on Thursday and payrolls on Friday, it's not going to work out for you. Yeah. That's why you need to project your cash out a quarter, two quarters. Because if you know you have some cash challenges and you have a banking relationship, when you go to your banker 100 days before you're, you're out of cash and say, I need a, a special credit line based on my assets, usually receivables and inventory, then the, you can set that up and have it in place. And then when this hits and the days go longer, you can manage through that. And I, again, I advise always raising prices when they do that, even the big companies. And they'll, they'll push you and they'll argue with you, but it's a cost to you. You're now, you're now paying interest. Right. And, uh, and so- <laughs> Um, there, there's a consequence to that. In these big companies, I was there, I was at Ford as a financial analyst. I can do the math. And when I take receivables from 60 to 120 days at a company like GE, they probably save $10 billion in cash in the next three months by spreading it out that far. So they can, but the problem is, as an analyst, I don't get to see all the little cuts that come if you guys all raise prices, all the small businesses raise prices, but pretty soon their cost of goods sold go up and their profit goes down. Right. And so, and so, but if there's no implications of that, you say, you know, that's okay, we'll just do it. Then they'll go, well, why not go to 200 days? Mm-hmm. So you got, you got to make sure that you defend your turf and you, and you let them know that prices are going to go up. They have to, because you moving from 60 to 120 days, you are going to incur additional costs, right? If you, if you tap into your credit line, if you, if you, got, if you have to do an inventory loan, but sometimes those receivables are factoring, it is right. some of the most expensive money you can borrow. Yeah, so you have to factor is, yeah, you're going to lose a lot of money, especially if it's under duress. So, right. Yeah, it's very expensive. And so you need to pass that through. I'll tell you another story related to this in my business. We dealt with that with AutoLeave. Mm-hmm. And then when we were working with Tesla, um, my purchasing, my, my sales guy comes in one day and he goes, hey, we got a letter from purchasing. They say they want to go from 70 to 90 days. And they want us to invest in the dream of Tesla's environmental dream and all this kind of stuff. And so I said, you know what, Clark, why don't you call him back and ask him how many shares of stock we get for investing by, by doing that? And he goes, I don't think he means it that way. No, I really want you to call him and ask him how many shares we get at Tesla. So he <laughs> called the guy and he said, we didn't mean it that way. I go, well, invest implies that we get a return, but we're not going to get a return by doing that. We're going to lose money. So tell him that we will raise prices significantly if you take us out that far. And right. we ended up keeping it where it was. But the point I want to make is, is, is if you don't understand that, You'll become a victim. And during the pandemic, when cash flow is tight and everybody's really struggling and your margins are lower, getting squeezed by your, by your, your, uh, your company that, and, that, and your working capital could, could be the end of your business. So it begs a question then, and I think I know the answer to this, but I, you know, you, businesses diversifying their sources of capital, right? Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Right. One bank, one basket. I remember when the Great Recession hit and I had a print publishing company and 
the bank, I, I had I had three different banks that I was working with, but one of them was sold right before the recession hit. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm in the process of printing my magazines. And that was a pretty significant upfront cost. So I tap into the credit line, <clears throat> I pay all my publishing expenses, and then I get the money back in advertising. And literally, as I'm getting ready to publish the magazines, they called in their line of credit. By the end of the month, you know, they, they said, um, you know, it was something like a, a $350,000 line. I had about 60 on it, but we we're going to go probably bring it up to about 300. And I said, well, I'll, I'll be able, I'll, I'll be able to pay you back in, 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 uh, you know, 30, 30 days after the magazines are published. And uh, they said, no, you, you need to do this now. And what happened was they called the line <clears throat> And then they said, you have to pay off the 60 that's on it. Now, they were nice enough to make that uh, a short-term loan, and they gave me another 60 days to pay it off. But nonetheless, I had to scramble and tap into one of my other resources. Thankfully, I had it, that I could print my magazines. But let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the, 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 the challenges when you are only accessing one source of capital. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things in that story that are cautionary. First of all, if you get in that situation, you handle it right. The bank doesn't want to default you to default. They want their money. And so first negotiate and, and say, give me some time. And that, they'll usually work with you that way. The other thing, the other point you make is really important. You need to have relationships with a lot of different sources. You might want to you might want to have a good factoring group that isn't isn't uh, isn't too onerous or too aggressive. Um, there are some like that, some things. And, and you also should talk to, to uh, finance companies that do finance your equipment and things like that to, to make sure that when you're buying capital uh, for your business, you don't always just cash it out, but you use, use a financing company for that. And then you should have probably two or three bank relationships. I think that's always important. So you have different angles to go to. And, and perhaps you get your capital from one bank and you have your credit line with another bank. And you know sometimes I would have two credit lines existing at two different banks and uh, work through that. So it, it's important to, to look at all your options. And there's a lot of stuff out there now. When you, when you get online, you can, you can find a lot of different ways to raise capital and get money. And then, you know, the, the last thing is to, is to have, have investors in place, have people that, are, that, that believe in your business and understand it. And if you have to give up some equity to stay in business, uh, that takes time too. And having those relationships in place is really important. Yeah, all of these things are all of these options are great, but to your point, they take time. And so, who was it Harvey McKay who said, "Dig your well before you're thirsty." Yeah, right? exactly. And, That's great. And, yeah, and so you know, for for the people who have survived the pandemic, the business owners listening who have survived the pandemic, today is a very good day to start thinking about where your business is going to be in 2022. And, and beyond, and um, and what you might need as you start to grow your business. We all have goals. I, here's where I want to be at the end of 2021. Well, how am I going to get there? And what resources will I need? And maybe I'll need some capital resources. So what are my options? Don't put all my eggs in one basket, as we discussed. But then even going further out, what are the longer term options? To your point, Joe, investors, you know, you don't call somebody on a, on a Monday and they're investing in your company on a Wednesday. Right. Um, th that's a long-term strategic decision to say, I, equity is like marriage, I say. 
you know, oh, yeah. be careful, be careful of your partner and, and make sure they share your vision. They share your dream and, and that they will be with you in good times and bad. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. Be careful, you know, be careful about doing your equity deals. Be careful about who you bring in as a partner. Right, right. Fear and trepidation. Yeah, debt, debt is dating. Equity is marriage. Right. <laughs> but okay. you know, sometimes, sometimes when you're capital starved, that's the answer, and and uh, that's that's how you that's how you'll survive sometimes. And when you get in these in these kinds of situations, you know, in two thousand eight and nine, you weren't going to get a, a bank loan very oh, easily. No. Anything, so you had to do that kind of thing. So again, nurture those relationships. Find people you'd be interested in. You know, recently, even about three months ago, uh, a guy I've done business with for maybe four or five years, always admired his business. He came to me and and my business partner at the Business Leaders Institute and said, "You know, we'd like to. We need a capital injection. Would you guys like to look at this business?" And we thought this is really interesting business. We might be interested in that. But we've known each other for years, and uh, they, you know, they got their PPP loan. They've been really careful, and they. They've been able to get through this, but they need a little bit more capital. And so, you know, he had this relationship already in place with us and we're considering it. Maybe probably do it. Yeah. But, uh, but again, just, you know, you got to be very careful when you do that, as you say. Right. Right. And, and, and there are certainly benefits of working with people that, you know, and, and even when I start to think about banking relationships, uh, you know, credit unions. I, I personally love credit unions. I feel like they, you know, I've, I've been with the two different credit unions over the last 30 years uh, of being in business. And I feel like they are fantastic. They, they have my back, I like to say. Uh, in fact, I got my PPP loan through my credit union um, versus the, uh, you know, sometimes the, the, you know, there are benefits to doing business with big banks. And there are, doing, there are benefits of doing business with smaller banks or other types of financial institutions. But I, I think the, uh, the personalized customer service of the people in your town who know who you are, they know your business, they know your family, um, that, that can't be um, undersold when talking about yeah. the kinds of relationships that you want. I agree with community banks and credit unions. In our, our business, we, we use credit union accounts and, you know, Karen Berman, when she was involved in the BLI business, she lives in LA and I live here in Utah, the Salt Lake City, Utah area. And we had a Wells Fargo account because she had branches there and I had branches here. So that was very convenient. But we also had a, a credit union relationship at the same time and a small community bank relationship here in our area where we could raise money there too. So having these relationships and having different types of financial institutions involved is, is important to do and have because you know what? They all change and they all they all uh, do things differently. You know, many years ago, we had a we had a receivable based credit line with uh, with the Bank of Utah, which is a community bank. And I'm, I remember I was on a road trip and I'm driving in the road and the banker calls me and says, Joe, we got to close down your line. You got you got 60 days. I go, why is that? And they said, well, we we do receivables credit, but we but there's a customer. One of our big customers in the receivables credit line had a bunch of bogus receivables that we didn't audit and we just lost $2 million and just shutting it all down, our whole bank. And so I had other relationships. Yeah, we had a, about a $2 million line with these guys, but I had other relationships and they worked with me, but I was able to go to a credit union to get part of it and also to Wells Fargo and take care of it. But those kinds of things happen with community banks. They go up and down too. And right. So right. Don't, don't think they're rock solid either. 
Right, right. But but again, the thing that you and I are both emphasizing here is don't put all your eggs in one basket. I can't tell you how many podcasts I've done with uh, entrepreneurs who said the exact same thing. Uh, You know, um, I I had one who said, I I went to my bank. They've been my bank for 15 years. I went to them for a PPP loan and they said no, because I didn't have a credit relationship with them. And and he was stunned. And he said, "Okay, well, what do I do now? Where do I go? And so, yeah, definitely. So I I think the two um, the biggest points that we're making here today, one, obviously, you have to know your finances. You have to know cash flow. Cash flow. Yeah. Yeah. Not just a lot of people focus on profit. Know your cash flow and project it out. That's one. Right. And and where where are the hiccups in your cash flow? Because your payables will almost always stay the same, right? If you owe money to people, whether it's a fixed or variable cost, right? They're they're probably there month in and month out. And yeah, you you know your payroll, you know you know that kind of stuff. It's going yeah. to be protected when you get the work done, when you invoice it, when you're going to collect. And uh, and that's but you should do you should do everything you can to do that. I've talked to people who say, well, I really don't know my my customers don't pay that often, and they're not consistent. They'll pay in thirty then forty five. Uh, what do I do about that? Make your best guess is what you do about that. You know, be conservative, call it all 45 and make sure you have enough cash. I right. Mean, you've got, but it, that's better than not doing anything. So make your projections. Right. And, and sometimes, and, then, and sometimes you need to be the squeaky wheel. You know, Hey, listen, if you, if you want, if you aren't too sure, like if you, if you're on your, your um, payables radar screen, be a day late making a payment. And see how quickly the phone rings. Hey, where's my money? Right. In a lot of cases, you need to do that same thing. Business owners are sometimes scared to make that phone call. Hey, you, you know, you owe me money and, and the receivable is, is past due. That's a hard phone call to make for people because uh, they don't want to lose the business, especially if it's a large account or somebody that they're friends with. And now all of a sudden they got to say, hey, you know, you're, you're late paying your bill. Uh, that's one, that's a part of business Two, That's going to affect your business and it will continue to affect your business. And maybe they don't even know it's late. Maybe they're not aware of it. I I had a a great example of a customer when I first started and it was a bank. I first started, they were, they were four months late paying my bill. I had a monthly retainer and they owed me a deposit up front and four months. And I had just started. And so I was building my business and I was counting on this. And I kept kicking the receivable back. And I was told by the marketing team that I, the, I could only go through them, that I couldn't call accounts payable about the matter. And I finally, I remember I, it was over the holidays uh, at the end of the year. And I said, you know what? I don't care if I lose this account. I'm calling the CEO of the company tomorrow. And I'm going to say, you owe me a lot of money and I need it because I'm just starting out. Well, I did call the CEO's office and I got kicked to payables, the head of payables. And I told the woman my story and she was mortified and she was angry. She said, how dare the marketing department tell you not to call me if we haven't paid you? I don't understand why. I see you in the system. I see the money we owe you, and we're going to wire the money into your account right now. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. You know, in, in my little company, my partner's father would work with us, and he he was the collector guy. And uh, 
And he would call and he would be really aggressive. And, and, and you know, if you get big enough, you can do that. You, know, you have your sales guys that might help you with initially, but if it gets really problem, a problem, you take it to your accounting department and have someone who can call them that. And, and one time this customer owed us a lot of money. They called me, you know, cause I was the finance CFO of the company and everything and the, and the finance owner. And he said, listen, you got to have Ben quit calling us because my accounts payable is going to, she's going to end up in therapy. I mean, he's, <laughs> he says things that make her create. And I go, and I said, you know what? There's an easy solution to this and it's not having him stop calling you. Okay. So if you want to avoid therapy, pay your bill, but, right. but you know, and, and I don't think, I, I think you have to be that way. And sometimes separating it and having your salespeople not have to get involved as much or less and having someone else that specializes in that, like we did helps with that. Yeah. Separately. Yeah. But, and that's, a, and that's a great conversation to have. And that, that takes a red flag and, and puts it down. Said so that red flag popped up when you were late with your payments. And now I'm able to put it down because we had a conversation about it. And it's something to be said about if you owe people money, you know, that's, that's the first thing you need to do is call them and explain the situation. So they're not thinking the worst of your business. Yeah, and I'll tell you a story about that side of it with, with Setpoint, my company. When I got involved with these two engineers, they were so traumatized in their former company because they would design things, send it out to be fabricated, and the fabricator would say, you guys are 100 days late on the other stuff we did for you. We're not yeah. going to do any work. So they said, we want to do everything net 30. And I said, you guys don't understand. you got a customer that pays in 60, and you want to pay net 30. And so I came and helped them get a credit line for how to manage that. And so we ran our business that way for three or four years, but then we got a big, big chunk of work. And, uh, and I said, you know what? There's no way we can get through this unless we start paying 60 days for the next three or four months. Yeah. And, and so they said, okay, we'll do that, but you need to call our suppliers and, and ask for permission to do that and offer them interest for delay. And I go, okay. So I had our, I had our AP clerk call all the people and all, the, all, our, all our key um, suppliers. And every one of them said, yeah, we'll go to 60 for, you know, three or four months. And we don't, we don't want any interest from you. We just really appreciate you guys pay on time and you're being upfront about this. And, and so but you would be surprised if you have a good relationship on how people will work with you on the other side of the coin too. You owe a lot of money to somebody that you've worked with for years and you've been paying them consistently and say, you know, we need to go to 60 days or 80 days right now if you can hang on. We had no issues with that after a good relationship. So understand that too. You can work both sides of this. Yeah. That's great advice. And, you know, it goes back to that almost like that open, open book uh, strategy, you know, right. kind of sharing, you know, the, the big quote these days is uh, vulnerability is the new invincibility. You know, I'm going to share with that. you. Yeah, I'm going to share with you, you know, here's here's the highs and here's the lows and here's here's everything in black and white. And, and you know, this is where I could use your help. And this is where I might be able to help you. And right. I think I think one, you'll sleep a lot better at night, not worrying about your finances because you've had conversations, you've agreed to a solution, and whatever whatever rough spots you hit along the way, and there will be rough spots in in 2021 for companies. People who are listening to this podcast right now, there will be rough patches from a financial perspective in your business in 2021. Maybe not all of you but certainly a lot of you. And if, you, if you're listening to Joe and to a lesser extent me, uh, the best piece of advice we can give you is keep an open dialogue, whether you are on the receivable end or you're on the payable end. Because if you don't, then you leave 
it up to the imagination of the other person as to why right. this, this situation isn't resolved. And usually that defaults to the worst, right? Oh yeah. my God, they're going out of business and they're going to take our receivables with them. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you have to be careful how you, you approach those issues when you talk to suppliers, but we've never had any issues. We've done that. I think we've done that twice in our history at, at set point and always the vendors were great to work with us, trusted us. And, and, uh, and, and those, those things happen on both sides. So I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. All right. This, we are at the witching hour, Joe. Okay. This, this was, and it goes so fast. I do want to have you back on because I think you are an invaluable resource to business owners and to large companies as well. Um, uh, and, and with all your knowledge and your wisdom and your experience. So thank you very much for taking time today uh, sure. to be on our podcast. If people want to learn more about your online courses or the Business Literacy Institute or any of the training that you do, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Uh, our website, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, business-literacy.com. Business-literacy.com. That's yep. easy. Uh, okay. Joe Knight, thank you very much for today. You're welcome. Uh, and you can find his book, uh, Financial Intelligence, uh, listed by Harvard Business Press as one of the top 100 business books ever written. Uh, you can probably find that on, I'm assuming, Amazon. Or, yeah, you can get it on Amazon, all the normal places. And, yeah. And, uh, and, and there are a series of books that you've done right off of the financial intelligence. Right. Right. And I'd start with the original book. We have it. We also have a graphic novel version of it that people like, and we can get that to you too. You can get that through the website. So all that stuff, all that material is available. Uh, you, you know, I'll plant to see with you, maybe come up with a cartoon version of the book for me, people like me, a kid's version. No, our, our graphic novel is the cartoon version. We have, all right. We've already right. done it. <laughs> good enough. A lot of people uh, really like it. My, one of my good clients is Electronic Arts, the gaming company. EA yeah. Games. Sports, and uh, they like the graphic novel better than the uh, the actual book. You know, they, they're yeah. more cartoon guys. They're you visually know. oriented. Yeah. All right. I did a podcast for that book for that graphic novel, and I called it a cartoon book. And the guy said, "No, this is a graphic novel because it's an informative book using illustrations." So I have to be careful about the cartoon term. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. a graphic novel. They, they take they take that seriously. I bet. Yeah, I said, you know, when I tell my mom I wrote a graphic novel, she has a whole nother idea. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Anyway. Uh, that's good. Um, okay. Uh, so again, Joe, thank you. I want to thank our listeners. I want to thank Pitney Bowes uh, for being our sponsor of our podcast and all that you do for small business owners around the world. Uh, you're fantastic. And uh, again, please, for, for our audience, please keep those questions and the comments and the feedback coming. We appreciate them. Any topics you want us to cover on future podcasts, we love getting those. You can send them to me, Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at smallbusinessedge.com. And uh, we look forward to catching up with you again in a future edition of the Small Business Edge podcast. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to the Small Business Edge podcast with Brian Moran, sponsored by Pitney Bowes. Please visit our website, smallbusinessedge.com, for a listing of future podcasts.